Ricky Jackson is short and lean. He grew up on the Cleveland, Ohio's east side, oldest son of a working-class family. When he was 18 years old, he enlisted in the Marines, and his dream was to make a career out of the military, except he had a, some physical problems, and he got an honorable discharge just a year into his enlistment. Went back to Cleveland, Ohio, still 18 years old, and got into trouble. Jackson and two friends were arrested, and they were convicted of killing Harold Franks. Harold Franks was a money order salesman. The police never found a murder weapon. They never found anything that tied the three men to the crime, except a local paperboy named Eddie Vernon, who was 12 years old at the time, said he saw these three men commit the crime. They were convicted of murder. They were sentenced to die by electrocution. And that was 1975. And in 1978, the Supreme Court, Court ruled that unconstitutional. You couldn't do that, illegal. And so they were just placed uh, there uh, for, uh, to, to, to serve out the rest of their life in prison. Ricky Jackson continued to serve, and um, he, he said this, he said, that boy, the boy who I was before prison, with all his dreams, all his intentions, he died the moment he was locked up. In 2011, <clears throat> Cleveland Magazine published an article on some court cases that they felt had some um, inadequate evidence and this was one of, the art, uh, one of the cases. Eddie Vernon, that paper boy, that 12-year-old paper boy, his pastor read the article, went back and talked with Eddie Vernon. They went and talked to some lawyers, and then they uh, met with the Ohio Innocence Project. Vernon, that paper boy, rescinded his 1975 testimony saying he was coerced and pressured to testify against the men. So after 40 years in prison, Jackson, now 58 years old, was released. He was awarded a million dollars, and he's trying to get his life back together. 40 years in prison as an innocent man. Eddie Vernon, the paper boy, met with Jackson and the other men and apologized. And Jackson says he forgives them. He said he was just this goofy little kid who told a whopper. Besides, he wasn't only Vernon who put us there. It was the lawyers and the officials and the system. And there are a lot of, a lot of innocent men out there who are never going to get justice. In that sense, I feel lucky. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being 40 years in prison for something you didn't do. Justice. That's, that's all we want, right? We want it in our lives, and we want it in the lives of, around us. And sometimes justice is served, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's perverted, and sometimes it's misunderstood in, in, in the broken world. And that's not new. That's what happens to Job as we look at him today. 
He is calling out for justice. Take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 8. And as you're finding uh, your, your spot, let me, let me set the context. A lot of people believe that the book of Job is about suffering. And certainly there is a lot of suffering in the book of Job. And there's a lot of pain. But the book of Job is not a book you go to to find out why you are suffering. If you're suffering and you go to the book of Job and you want everything tied up nice and neatly, this is how God works. You're going to be really disappointed after you read this book. The book of Job has a central theme, and we could say this theme in, in, in four questions. One is, can I believe God when life doesn't make sense? When life doesn't make sense to me, when I don't get it, can I still believe God? Can I trust God when I can't explain him? Why should I serve God? That's a question of Job. And if we could sum up Job in three words, it would be this. Is God enough? Take away everything else. Is God enough? The story of Job begins with a man who God himself said was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned from evil. Now, that does not mean Job was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He had his issues. He was a sinner just like you and me. But that, what it means is that, that in his life, there was, the, there was the habit of obedience. He was following after God. There wasn't any blatant sin or, or hidden sin that he was involved in. And God blessed him greatly. He was a man of integrity. He had, he had uh, children. He was the, it says he's the greatest man in all the East. And he had wealth and health and children. And that's, that's what Satan used to come against him. This heavenly council we saw a couple times ago, Satan came and said, God, who wouldn't worship you if you gave them all the things that Job gives them? Who, who wouldn't worship you? I mean, if you give them 10 children and if you make them the wealthiest man around, who wouldn't? But you take that away. You take that away and he will curse. Job will curse you, God, to your face. Satan's issue is not with Job. Who, Satan is, who is Satan's issue with? It's with God. You know what he's saying? God, you're not worthy. You're not worthy of worship. You have to give out prizes and awards and stuff for people to worship you. On your own, you are not enough. With his heart filled with, with grief and his body in, covered with blisters, now Job lost everything that he valued. And he moved from his home and his neighborhood to the city dump to set among the ashes. That's where most of the book of Job takes place. Three friends came and, uh, and visited with him. They, they sat with him. For, they didn't even recognize him at first. They sat with him for a week, didn't say a word. Then they started to speak. Job needed comfort and encouragement. He needed sympathy. He needed prayer. He needed these friends to sit with him and read scripture with him. And instead, he received instruction and he received challenge and he received rebuke. And he received ways just to fix his desperate situation. Eliphaz was the first friend who spoke. And he said, 
Job, God is punishing you for your sin. Own up to it. Repent and turn back to God. He's punishing you for his sin. Now, Eliphaz was a bit of a philosopher, and he based everything on experience and wisdom. Eliphaz said, this is what I've experienced. I know it because I've experienced it. You know people like that? I had one guy tell me, birds don't fly at night. Okay, how do you know that? You ever seen a bird fly at night? Have you ever seen a bird fly at night? I don't know. But he hadn't seen one, so birds didn't fly at night. And a lot of people base, someone's going to Google and say, yeah, birds don't fly at night. I I know that. (laughs) But a lot of people base their Whatever their belief system on just the things they experience. The problem is, yeah, they experienced everything. Bildad is the next guy. We're going to talk about him today. And, and basically, Bildad sings the same song, second verse. But he just hits it just a little differently. Eliphaz was focused on Job. Job, you're guilty. Job, you're being punished because of your guilt. Job, turn from your sins and God will bless you. Bildad basically says the same thing, but he starts with God, and Bildad says, God is just, and God punishes the guilty because he's just, and God is punishing you because he's just and you're guilty, and if you turn from your sins, the just God would restore you. Eliphaz starts with Job. Bildad starts with God. Basically get to the same spot. Chapter 8, verse 2. Remember Bildad, they're all three are there talking. A lot of times when Job responds, he's responding to all of them. Bildad has heard the first interaction with Eliphaz, and now without any introduction, he tells Job, you're just a big windbag. Verse 2, how long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? NIV, blustering wind. Job, you don't even know what you're talking about, but you just keep talking. And Job, the issue is God's justice. Look at verse 2. 3, rather. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Rhetorical questions, we could say them in a statement. Bildad is saying, God does not pervert justice. God doesn't distort justice. God, the, the, the Almighty, does not pervert what is right. Job, he is just, he is right, you are wrong, and that's why you're being punished. He bases his, uh, everything he believes, his philosophy, not on knowledge, but on history. Look at verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages. This is how God works. Consider what the fathers have searched, but we are but of yesterday, for we are but of yesterday, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will, will, will they not teach you and tell you? In other words, out of, out of their understanding. It's about history, Job. This is the way God works. Eliphaz knew it because he experienced it. I know it because I know history. And then he gets downright cruel. Because God's just, I guess he's trying to comfort Job. 
But look at verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. Do you hear what he says? Job, at least you can be comforted in this. Your children didn't die because of your sin. They died because of their own sin, because God is just. And if you're wrong, you get punished. The rest of Job's interaction with Bildad is kind of the picture of a courtroom. Job knows God's just, and Job knows he's innocent, and we know he's innocent. And Job's saying, I need to take God to court. If I could just get him in a courtroom, I could prove my innocence, I think, Job's saying, but it's God, so how do, you, how do you even get him in a court? And so he uses words like this in chapter 9, verse 3, if one wished to contend with him, that word means enter into litigation. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. If you talked to God and he, and, he, and he said a thousand things to you, you couldn't come back with a good answer one time. That word answer means testify in court. In chapter 9, verse 15, though I am right, I know I'm right, but I can't answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. The word accuser is opponent at law. Look at verse 16. If I summon him and he answered me, if I could, the word summon means to set a date for court. If I could get a court date with God, I could prove my innocence. But then again, he's God. Verse 33. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? There's, there's no one who can stand between us and lay his hand on both of us and plead my case. No umpire. Job wonders how he could ever prove himself innocent. How can you prove yourself innocent to God? I'm innocent, but how do I do it? In um, beginning in, in nine, chapter 9, verse 4, Job starts making these great um, comments, truths about God. And it seems like he's turning a corner. He says in verse 4, he is wise and mighty in strength. In verse 5, he removes mountains. In verse 6, he shakes uh, the earth. In verse 7, he commands the sun. In verse 8, who alone stretched out the heavens. In verse 9, he's the one who made all the constellations. In verse 10, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. You think, man, Job is coming back, right? He is saying, man, okay, I can't contest God, but this is who God is. But then you read further, and that's only a backdrop. Job's only using that as a backdrop for his helplessness. He's saying, that's who God is. That's these great truths about God. But look at verse 20. Though I am right, my own mouth will condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove my, me perverse. I am blameless, but I can never go against him. He's, he's, even, he's just too great for me to go against him. Turn over to chapter 19, where Job uh, answers Bildad's second round. And, and Job gets personal. You know, he, he says in verse 8, 
God has walled up my way so I can't pass. I'm trapped here. I can't get out of my situation. He stripped me of my glory. My, my hope is pulled up like a tree. Isn't that a, that's a statement, isn't it? I'm just hopeless. My hope just, just pulled up like a tree and, and, and put down on the ground. Then look at verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that, that they were inscribed in a book. It's amazing. They were, right? He got his, he got his wish. Oh, that uh, with an iron pen and lead. They, uh, they, they used to have books made out of lead with just real thin lead pages. They were engraved in a rock. My words were engraved in a rock forever. Amazing they were. But Job says, I want them there because I am innocent. And then, out of his depths of pain and suffering, Job makes this amazing statement of truth. Chapter 19, verse 25. We're going to look at it a little bit today. We'll come back to it later in another message. Job says, for I know my what? My Redeemer lives. And at last, he will stand up on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. And, and he says, just thinking about that, my heart faints within me. So let's think about that just a second. Again, we're going to hit it deeper in another sermon. The word redeemer or redeem or redemption is a, is a rich word throughout Scripture. And when we first read it in Scripture, like a lot of other theological words, it's not a theological word. It, is a, it begins not as a theological word. It begins as a commercial and legal term. So if you're in the Old Testament, if you're in the community of Israel and... Um, you have a land, right? And you run, out, you, you run up with some hard times. And you have to sell a portion of your land. Well, that's a portion of your income. You need that. So your closest relative, maybe a brother, maybe an uncle, maybe a cousin, maybe a second cousin, your closest relative with means, they are required to come and buy back your land for you. That's how you take care of family. You take care of community, right? And they're called your kinsman, redeemer. Uh, To redeem means to reclaim something as its own. So now I'm reclaiming that back to myself. If you were in debt, uh, your brother or or, uh, cousin or uncle would have means, would help you out of debt. They would pay the debt for you, your kinsman, redeemer. Um, If you were so in debt that you had to sell yourself to slavery, they would come and buy you back. They would reclaim you, a legal and commercial term. If you were a woman back in those days and your husband died, I mean, that's it. You don't have a house. You're on your own. And you don't have any kids. You are on your own. And so your husband's brother or nearest relative had the responsibility to, to take you as his wife and care for you, his protection. We, we, you care for each other. That's the, whole, that's the whole book of Ruth, right? The whole book of Ruth, her husband dies, 
She goes back to the kinsman redeemer. Well, a commercial term and a legal term then becomes, as, as other words do in Scripture, a beautiful theological term. So by the time we get to poetry and prophecy, now, it's, now we understand it like this. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43, 1, as one example. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have what? I have redeemed you. I love this passage. I have redeemed you. I have reclaimed you as my own. I have called you by name. You are mine. Man, what a comfort for every believer, right? You are mine. Job is in distress. He is in pain. He is in suffering. And by the way, that's where... That's where some of our richest understanding of God comes from, doesn't it? When we are in a tough time. And Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. And he doesn't know the name of Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus Christ. He doesn't even know the cross. But he knows that God is going to stand and God's going to reclaim him as his own and somehow there's going to be this arbiter between them. One is coming. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Old Testament or New Testament. The basis of salvation is always grace. You can't do it on your own. The means of salvation is always faith. And the object of salvation is always who? Always Jesus. Job one of the first books written, doesn't know about Jesus, but he knows there's a Redeemer coming. And so in the Old Testament, you're looking forward to a Redeemer. We are looking back to see what Jesus did for us on the cross. Some lessons from Job as we wrap this up. The first one is this. God is just and God is God. I'll explain what I mean by that. Bildad, so Bildad said, right, his argument is what? God is just, right? Is God just? Was Bildad right in saying that? So why is Bildad wrong? Why would we say Bildad's communication to Job is wrong? God's just. Let's explain it this way. Um, let's just say this is God. Now, first of all, you can't draw a good illustration of God, right? A circle, it doesn't work. But let's just say. And we think about God, and we think about all the attributes of God. So we would, we would say God is uh, God's holy. Uh, God is righteous. God is all powerful. God is all present. God is all knowing. Uh, God is faithful, right? We could keep going on these. God is just, and God is merciful, merciful. Now, here's a, here's a problem. 
anytime you take out one of these, let's put some more in. Let's say God is, God is grace. I'm going to use this one. God's grace, gracious, and God is love. Anytime you pull those out and you say, God is love. That's true, right? But if you just say, God is love, if you pull out that characteristic, that attribute, uh, with disregarding the others, what do you end up with? Universalism. God is love. At the end of the day, everybody, he's just going to invite everybody home. Jesus really doesn't matter. God is love. That's a, that's a heresy. That's a problem. If you take God's grace and you say, God is gracious. That's absolutely true. But then you could get to the point where one guy I met with who was getting ready to blow up his family and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, God is gracious. He'll forgive me. That's true. God is gracious. God is just. That's what Bildad said. He's not wrong. God is just. God is just. Therefore, he must be punishing your sin. So the problem is you cannot pull out one attribute of God and say that's who God is. God is love. He is gracious. But he does all these things in complete harmony. They're all working together. So God is just, but as one theologian says, he tempers his justice with what? With mercy. He's just. If he's just just, by the way, Bildad's argument that God is just is self-indicting. Because he's a sinner, and if Job's being punished for his sin, Bildad should be punished for his sin. God is just, but he's also merciful. God is just. He must punish sin. Bildad's right, but what Bildad didn't look at was the rest of God, or God. God's also merciful. And he, we know now, provided a substitute for us. God's justice says, I got to punish sin. In God's mercy, he says, I'm going to punish sin, but I'm going to send my son to be punished for you. I'm going to send my son to take on the wrath for you. I won't take time to, to read it, but um, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through, through 26, jot that down. At the end of that uh, passage in Romans three twenty six, it says, I love this passage, God is both just and the justifier. He is both just and the one who justifies. He's the one who declares us guilty, And then he sends his son and puts the penalty of our guilt on his son and then declares us not guilty. Just and the justifier. And I pray, if you're here today and you don't know, you don't know for certain that you have trusted in the justifier. You don't know for certain that you are redeemed, that you have been reclaimed by God. Man, I pray today is the day that you trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God, that you realize on your own you are going to take the final and full 
wrath of God because he is just. But man, don't miss his mercy in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you on a cross. And I pray today, if you haven't, you will trust in Christ and you'll trust in him alone. One more thing. In the book of Job, we get to see firsthand the depth, the thoughts, the feelings of a sufferer. And one of the things we see in Job is that suffering is lonely. Some of you would agree with that, right? Suffering is lonely. There's an isolation in suffering. Job had been the greatest man in the East, but now, with his family gone, his health devastated, he's sitting at the city dump. And most people are right along with Eliphaz and, and Bildad and Zophar next week. Job must have sinned really bad. I mean, not like stub your toe and say a bad word bad. He must have really sinned bad. And we don't want anything to do with him. The isolation of suffering. In chapter 19, he describes it. Chapter 19, verse 13, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. My brothers and sisters, man, I'm a stench to them. Even young children despise me. Young children who should respect their elders, even they despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I, I, those whom I loved have turned against me. Man, do you feel that? The isolation of suffering. Two things. Some of you are going through some tough, tough things. And, and, and look, I know. We can always say, well, this is tough, but someone else has it tougher, right? But, but that's, that's not how it works. If we're going through something, we're going through something. And suffering is lonely. And sometimes you just suffer in silence. And sometimes in the community where you could get help and people could walk with you, you can put on that game face, right? Everything's fine. Far be it from me to ever give a hint that something 
might not be perfect in my life. Far be it for me that I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to handle this on my own. So people suffer in silence. And it's a mistake. Because when you suffer alone, you're going to suffer poorly. And your suffering turns to pity and then to bitterness and then sometimes turning your back on God. And you need people to speak into your life. And you need people to walk with you. Now I get it. People can't be with you all the time. And sometimes that suffering is alone because you're by yourself. But you're never alone because you're with God. And it's those friends reminding you of that and walking with you and helping you. And we've got people here who will be happy to walk with you. We've got people here as a community to want to make, to, to, to make sure that you don't have to do this alone. It goes back to that commercial and legal kinsman redeemer thing, right? The, the, the community wanted to help people out, not just financially. They wanted to walk with them. They wanted to restore them. They wanted to help them. So if you're walking alone, man, reach out. Reach out. Second part of that is, if you know someone walking alone, if you know someone going through suffering, man, reach out to them. You know what? As a church, you know what we're good at? Triage. Right? First happens, man, we're all over it. We're all over it. Then time goes by, and we're not, we're not so all over it anymore. And if you know of someone in suffering, ball's in your court. You don't call the church office and say, you guys need to go help that person. Or you guys, you know what, you really need to start another ministry. You just go, you go help them. You go walk with them. We've already talked about it. You don't have to say that. I talked to a guy in the, in the lobby today, and a friend of his wife passed away. He said, you know what, I just went, and I sat with him for 30 minutes. Didn't say a word. When I got up, he said, thank you so much for being here. I think all of us can sit in silence, right? I'm always amazed at sometimes we see someone in suffering or we see them in a part of their suffering and we think they're doing okay. I'm always amazed when, when someone loses a loved one and we say, How, how's that person doing? Man, they're fantastic. They're great. And at the viewing... I don't know if I could handle it like that. They're in shock. They are hurting. They're suffering. Years ago, when someone would die, I used the spouse would die. I used to meet with the living spouse like two weeks later. I thought that was pretty, pretty cool, right? Pretty pastoral. You know what I learned? They got dressed up. They got ready. They put on their best face because they were meeting with me. They, they were like, good, good to go. And I'd say, man, she was great. And then her friends would say, seriously? Yeah, because she came in and had a meeting. 
And we, gotta, we, we have got to walk with people. If you know someone going through a hard time and they're saying, great, you know better than that. What can I do for you now? Got to reach out. Got to do it. That's what we do as a community. I, I, I was appalled by the Florida shootings, for sure, and I was most appalled by the, by the conservative commentators who, after those kids walked out and foolish uh, reporters stuck a microphone in a kid's face that just walked out of the building and stepped over their friends, and these commentators said, look, look, how, look how calloused they were. They were acting like nothing happened. Those kids were in shock. They will think about that and deal with that the rest of their lives. And it just shows how ignorant we can be of people who are hurting. So we've got to step up. And we've got to help out people who are going through a tough time. And again, this isn't, I'm calling the pastor of care. This is, I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. I have a responsibility. God has put me in this spot. He doesn't make mistakes. He put me in this spot. And now i got to do what he's called me to do. And that's a little messier, and it's a little harder than coming and singing songs on a Sunday. I get that. But that's where real life takes place, right? It gets kind of messy sometimes. Don't always have the right words. But that's what community is about.